I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ES Audio. Hello, I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nick Clark. Coming up on this week's show, we review Crazy For You at the Gillian Lynn Theatre. Direction and choreography for this show is by multi-Tony and Olivier Award-winning Susan Stroman. And we discuss a strange loop. You're running around there with a MFA, so now you're gonna write me a gospel play. Ooh, like Tyler Perry! Tyler Perry writes real life! A musical by Michael R. Jackson, directed by Stephen Brackett. That's on at the Barbican Theatre. Our interview this week is with Sherelle Skeet, star of Amazon original Hannah, and the stage production... Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. The very early magic tricks that we created was in our devising process, the movement we got to make, carrying people on our backs to kind of figure out how we can lift people, like being in harnesses and flying. Sherelle is currently performing in Beneath's Place at the Young Vic. That's written and directed by Kwame Kwe Amar. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Nick, you've just come back from a break and now Nancy's off. Yep, over in the States, I know. She's living it up in uh, upstate New York, I believe. I'm just back from Denmark where I've been having a lovely Scandinavian time. So Obviously, uh, Elsinore, yeah, high well, on the... <laughs> I have been to Elsinore before, uh, which is very impressive and very atmospheric as a as a, you, as a Do you really get the Hamlet vibes? You do get the Hamlet vibes. When they're in a, on a really snowy day where there was icicles hanging off the battlements and things, and so you really got the sense of that opening scene of the two soldiers uh, sort of isolated <laughs> up on the battlements. I didn't do any lines from Hamlet there, though I have done some lines you from Hamlet. must have been tempted. I did them at uh, the great th- amphitheatre of Epidaurus once, which did there earlier in I the mean, morning. in terms of theatrical name dropping, this <laughs> clang, clang it right here. It was just okay. me and my wife there and two American tourists, and this American woman she had let me say something. So I did a little bit of to be or not to be, which did give me a bit of a shiver up the spine, I have to say. Anyway, none of that on, on today's programme. No, <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there have been numerous things in the news this week. The big news in theatre this week, and I was surprised by quite how big it was, is that comedian Stuart Lee is going to be rewriting the Porter scene. <laughs> he's going to be rewriting Shakespeare, yes. Uh, <laughs> let's face it, you know, he's been crying out for he, a it, bit of script doctoring uh, and a few new gags for, for centuries. Again, I'm slightly surprised uh, about this. You know, I've, I've, 
I've seen Shakespeare tinkered with in many, many ways. And uh, I agree the Porter scene in Macbeth is is probably one of the ones where the jokes work least well. But it's a tiny, tiny fraction of, of There the can play. surely be no outrage here. No. You know, Shakespeare has been chopped up, rewritten, yeah. to, and he's managed to survive it all. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. As I, I, I think we were discussing earlier, I, I once saw a production of Hamlet where the gravedigger scene was reimagined as a rap, which ended with the words, <laughs> and now I'm going to necophilia, which is possibly <laughs> the least tasteful thing I've ever seen in a Shakespeare play. But, but every single Shakespeare production has a cut of some sort as the some scenes are taken out I mean yeah in Inevitably, they're not rewritten as such, but uh, well, every now and again, I would say they're sort of edited for clarity. There are some, yes, and you know, there are some rewrites and some, mm. you know, or some tweaks sometimes, yeah. or, or little things snipped out. Shakespeare's Globe put on their Twitter account this week asking people what their favourite line was in Shakespeare, and mine is uh, his knell is gnarled, which is always <laughs> cut out of Macbeth. <laughs> it's old Seward's line about his son. Dying, but uh, oh, wow. I think there's something really nice about it. his Nelly's Noel. His Nelly's Noel. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, but that one doesn't quite often doesn't make the cut. So I mean, I guess if this if this makes the Porter scene live again, then um, good. Uh, but the other big news is uh, Cabaret is going to Broadway. Well, we thought it might happen, but yeah. the, the longer it dragged on, you thought, well, where's it going to go? But they found a theatre for it, mm-hmm. the August Wilson Theatre. Yeah. Opening spring 2024. Um, it feels like a no no brainer to me. I mean, it's such an incredible show over here. I mean, absolutely, you'd imagine it translated over to Broadway. I can't see why not. Yeah. But so this is Rebecca Frecknell's production. Right. We should say that's been uh, running at the Playhouse, which has been transformed into the Kit Kat Club. I guess by Tom Scutt, who yep. is also designing out there as well. Absolutely. Um, and I guess you know you need to find a theatre which you can do the same yeah, sort of do over with. But amazing news! Rebecca Frecknell is just having an incredible year, isn't she? Yeah. Uh, with Streetcar Named Desire and whatever Romeo her other. Juliet, <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet. Just talk about Shakespeare, that guy Shakespeare. Um, yeah. I wonder if they're going to go real star casting. Obviously, it opened with Eddie Redmayne and Jesse Buckley, and it had a succession of fairly big names. And so yeah. I wonder who America might um, have up their sleeve for yes, the opening. Yes, indeed. I, I think they came up with a really interesting and quite smart casting model here, where mm. basically you've got really interesting names signing up for three-month runs rather than you know, sort of six months in yeah. a year, which I think means you do get biggish names who are prepared to invest mm. that amount of time in a show where a year would be you know invidious to their TV or film career yeah. and it's one of these legendary shows that people want to be in yeah, as well. yeah. Huh. it's a weird sort of re- repetition of the arc of the famous Donmar production which had uh, Alan Cumming in it and mm. went to Broadway which of course it, it, that dominated the whole sort of view of Cabaret for years even though because it was at the Donmar which has only just over 200 seats mm. hardly anybody saw it it was yeah. here for a month then it went to New York but for years that was the definitive mm. um, Cabaret this one Rebecca Frank one, even though there have been some issues about whether it's you know it's it's extremely expensive, mm. but uh, you can get into it more cheaply than the top price tickets, and mm. many many more people will have seen this one than Absolutely. will have seen that milestone uh, Donmar one. Yeah. So good for her, amazing yeah. work, Rebecca and, You know, good for the, the the good people of America. We'll get to see a really really excellent production. Absolutely right. Should we get into our first review? Yep, let's do that. This is Crazy for You at the Gillian Inn Theatre. So, Crazy View is um, a weird sort of hybrid in that it's effectively a 1930s musical that didn't really exist in its current form until 1992. Mm. It's based on a George and Ira Gershwin film musical from 1930 called Girl Crazy. The producers of this have lifted the songs from that. They've got a new book, a new story written for it by Ken Ludwig, mm. uh, and they've pulled in Gershwin songs from lots of other movies and lots of other sources over the years. So you've basically got 
a sort of tailor-made greatest hits package with yeah. a story written around it. And um, it, of course, Susan Stroman choreographed it in 92 and now yep. she's choreographing and directing. Did she direct it then as well? No, it was directed by Mike Ockrent, okay. the great British director who is no longer with us, but uh, they rather sweetly paid tribute to him. Susan Stroman came on stage mm. on, on press night and paid tribute to Mike Ockrent. And there are, mm. if you look carefully at it, there are a few nods to him around the set. There's an okay. advert for Ockrent's uh, 20% proof whiskey on, the, okay. on one of the saloon bar doors. But yeah, this is a sort of classic piece of, of 1930s entertainment, I would say. I mean, the story essentially is this theatre-mad Bobby yeah. who's basically torn between wanting to dance, wanting this career in showbiz, and basically running the family bank where he's sort of henpecked by his fiance, he's henpecked by his mum, mm. and he wants to get out, he wants to get onto the stage. Uh, but his mum sends him out to Dead Rock, Nevada, where... Uh, on behalf of the bank, he needs to go and foreclose on the local theatre because they've um, defaulted on their mortgage. Of course, when he gets there, it's not quite so simple. He falls hard for the theatre owner's daughter. <laughs> Who is the only woman in town. The only woman in town. <laughs> yes. And then he sets up an alternative plan to put on a show and save the theatre. Yeah, the show he's auditioned for is on a break in New York and he mm. thinks he can get all the showgirls out there and you know save the theatre and save the town by putting on a musical. A fairly bleak titter ran around the theatre people in the audience at, the, at this rather frankly uh, fantastical economic idea. I don't think anyone would think that was that was uh, a sound uh, way of going about things these days. But um, End up closing the rest of the town as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah, yes, quite, yes. But I mean, the, the plot really shouldn't bother one too much here really, no. is it? I don't think that's, that's the main no, thing this one is, goes is sort of the archetypal Broadway musical, isn't it, in a way? It, yeah. It's a screwball comedy. It's a romance. But above all else, it's pure spectacle. Yeah, it's tap dancing and tap dancing is absolutely irresistible. Mm. I always know if I'm going to go and see a show where there's a chorus line and they're going to be thundering mm. down the stage at me that I'm probably going to have a good time. Yep. This shares quite a lot of DNA with 42nd Street, yeah. which was also recently on, which was also adapted from a 1930s film. Mm. That production didn't quite work for me, but still the tap dancing was sublime. Mm. Here, this show fires on all cylinders. Absolutely. It's really, really great. It's really charming. It's really funny. The dance is, is really innovative um, mm. and classic at the same time. You know, and it's not just tap dancing, which I agree is amazing, mm. but it's just just the sheer choreography, the amazing choreography, the energy that comes off it. I was sitting there thinking the joy of seeing top, top professionals all in sync doing something at the top of their game it's just absolutely joyous. It is, it is. <laughs> and uh, yes, hats off to Susan Stroman here. Some yeah. of it is really swoonsome, the choreography, isn't it? The sort of yeah. dips and swoops and swirls of it. But there's also very, very smart, clever things. This is an old mining town, Dead Rock, which mm. has become defunct. And so there's a dance routine which revolves around prospecting pans and yeah. pickaxes, which is uh, just extraordinary. Yes. And, you know, very, very, very tight, very disciplined. Um, absolutely. Really brilliantly done. I think it's fascinating the way that American culture constantly cannibalizes itself. Mm. There, there's so many musicals about musicals about yeah. putting on musicals and so many that particularly hark back to this sort of 1930s heyday which if one thinks about it was slap bang in the middle of the, of the great depression mm. so girl crazy was was released in 1930 and it is about these sort of Ziegfeld Follies style mm. shows which are all froth and exuberance yeah. and enjoyment and I think are a distraction from harsh economic reality and Absolutely. I think so Crazy View is really ripe for our current times, isn't it? Yeah, really? and, and it, is, it is that pure, pure glamour and the, the, the Follies girls. It's just an extraordinary star. And yeah. the, but also, as we said, you know, being said in the 1930s, it also is, is pre pre Hayes Code. Yes. So there yeah. is a bit of, um, should we say, uh, close to the knuckle banter. In There's there. a bit of looseness um, in there, isn't there? Yes, I, <laughs> I think, mean, yes. It's fairly straightforward and fairly sweet, yes. really. But yeah. every now and then there's a little interaction where... Uh, should we say, well, there's the fiancé and the 
the love interest uh, when they really get going at each other. There are some <laughs> yes. choice lines. There are some choice there. lines. I think the fiance is told that uh, the love interest Polly is the only woman in town, and she says, "Well, no wonder she looks so tired." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are there, there are those sort of things. There's also I, I think there's some quite clever nods to other bits of 1930s culture. Mm. One of the things that Bobby Child does because. Mm. When Polly finds out that he comes from the bank, she wants nothing to do with him. Yeah. So he disguises himself as Bella Zangler, this mm. Hungarian impresario who he's been trying to audition for before. She falls in love with the fake Bella Zangler. Then, of course, the real Bella Zangler turns up. Yeah. And then we have a scene where the two Bella Zanglers yeah. interact together. And if you know the Marx Brothers mirror scene, say, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. a pure, pure brilliant soup, sort of yeah. riff on that. And it's, uh, and it's, it's absolutely in, hilariously done. That's sort of great stagecraft again it shows off all sorts of different you know from comedy to obviously the great choreography but this again brilliant comic choreography yeah yeah uh, and we, brilliant drunk acting and dancing from them it's a very very absolutely. hard thing to do to act as if you're not in control of your body and, it is uh, we should talk about the cast I mean yeah. Charlie Stemp who's yeah. sort of something of a, a, a rising musical star I mean well, yeah. he's a very established musical star actually but he is a sort of a solid name in the West End he was a, but he, he became a sort of in a way it sort of fits perfectly with this show and again yeah. with 42nd Street which is also part also part of the idea behind these shows I think is the American dream that anyone can be a star yeah a lot of here um, Bobby recruits a lot of the townsfolk and mm. indeed Polly turns out to be a wonderful musical actress yeah. and stage performer yeah. so she becomes the star of the show blah 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 it's all very self-referential and I think it is all tied into that idea that anybody can make it in yeah. America you know it's open to everyone um, and this is what happened to Charlie Stemp in yeah. 2016 he was hired by Cameron McIntosh to appear in a revival of um, Half a Sixpence yeah. which I think is a musical that nobody was crying out for yeah. <laughs> it's an old Tommy Steele uh, right. vehicle as I, I think but but he absolutely wowed everybody in that. I didn't actually see that production. Mm. He then played Bert, the chimney That's sweep right. in the revival of um, Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins so. and was incredible in that. I mean, he and Carly Anderson as Polly Baker yeah. seem almost weightless in this, mm. or they seem as if they're operating on a different system of gravity. There was some real La La Land stuff, wasn't there? Yeah, when the, the yeah. stars would come out behind them and yeah, the arms would, would yeah. flow. They, they do seem to float, don't they? Yeah, yeah they, they absolutely they, do. They really and, do. And actually... I think the dancing was where they really were at their most magnificent. I mean, mm. I thought Charlie Stemp was was superb. I thought in the performance was was perhaps overmannered every now and again. The sort of gurning musicalness yeah. of it all occasionally got a bit too much. I mean, it was very rare. It's, you know, I don't want to pick too many holes because I, I thought it was a wonderful production. But yeah, it, where they really come to their own is singing and dancing. I yeah. totally agree. Um, Carly Anderson has a really strong voice. Mm. I think you know, very, very, very sort of clear and sonorous. She's wonderful. Natalie Kasanga, I loved as uh, Irene, the uh, the fiance, yes. who is a sort of spare part she sort of hangs around for no very clear reason except that she's given this wonderful Gershwin song Naughty Baby to sing which is very sort of naughty <laughs> without ever without ever being explicit or specific it's, mm. it's a very sort of hot under the collar song isn't it and she sings it absolutely wonderfully yes she's great and we also got to give a shout out to Tom Eden yeah. who uh, listeners may remember from his amazing turn in One Man Two Governors where he played the waiter who fell down the stairs yes. um, and he brings some more of these comic chops to this character as well yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as Bella Zangler he's great he's got a, a wonderful sort of hollow eyed slightly yeah. desperate sweaty look to him hasn't he Tom Eden and mm. uh, it absolutely fits perfectly with this with this part and you mentioned the songs it's funny they were, came to the show completely cold I didn't 
know what was going to be in it. And the ones that I knew were someone to watch over me. I think yeah. that Frank Sinatra did later on. Mm. And also the classic I Got Rhythm, which has a brilliant scene of it's superbly choreographed. Yes. Um, and the one that I, I didn't know that I really enjoyed was Slap That Bass. Yeah, which that's was terrific. a joyous. Yeah. 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 That's a lovely sort of uh, that starts the sort of slide into the interval, doesn't it? it with uh, absolutely. four numbers of, of absolutely you know, rafter rattling stuff. They've got nice work if you can get it in this as well. They oh, can't yes. take that away from me, which is such a beautiful mm. song. Um, I mean, the Gershwins didn't ever write a duff number. I think. <laughs> they really, and uh, and it was it was very shrewd of, mm. of, of the Broadway producers, Auckland and, and, and now Strowman again, to uh, to basically corral them all in this in this one show. It's just a delight, isn't it? It's, it's just it's just a proper diversion from all the concerns. Yeah, I mean, I was there on a uh, Monday evening. I, it was a, it was a slow start to my week, and I, it, it properly lifted me out of out of the doldrums. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this and say anything goes, which uh, mm. you know, reopened the Barbican after lockdown. Yeah, uh, yeah. Again, another sort of frothy delight. Mm. Plot makes no sense. Doesn't matter. Everyone you know. kicking in unison. Exactly that's all you that. need yeah <laughs> as we say a chorus line advancing down the stage you're yeah. like an android army yeah so yep. so listeners go out pack go out. up your troubles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly and it's it's fitting that Crazy View is on at the Gillian Lynn Theatre which is the first major London theatre to be named after a choreographer it's just lovely right time for a quick break stick around to hear Nick Curtis chat to Sherelle Skeet about her new play Beneath Us Place now on at the Young Vic her living in Chicago in America, as we've just left her in A Raisin in the Sun. And she's newly married with her husband, Asagai, and she's come to Nigeria to be part of the movement of independence as a medical student, um, as a young doctor to help out, to be of service, um, to be not only a wife, but also to be a comrade to her husband. Her husband, Asagai, played by Zachary Momo, is the party leader um, and diplomat of this independence party. Um, so he would be seen as like the person that speaks on behalf of the party that liaises with the British. He yeah. also is one of the uh, leaders when there is like hostility, it's actually happening on his ancestral land. So he has a responsibility not only to the party, but also his community. He cares very deeply about his community. Um, in the second act, we then meet Benita as a dean, as a re very well-respected and revered academic within her field 
of social anthropology um, within the social sciences. And she has a faculty meeting. And rather than having it on the university premises or at the conference premises, she chooses to revisit the home that she set up with her husband that she hadn't been she hasn't been there for 50 years so she has this faculty meeting in her place basically um that she's that has been kept as almost like a tomb that she's been I suppose supporting from a distance whilst she's been working in America putting her work into academia. This play is written by Kwame Koyama the artistic director of The Young Vic which is where it's on. It's sort of a sequel to um, A Raisin in the Sun isn't it but also to some degree a response to Bruce Norris's play, Clibborne Park, which was itself a response to A Raisin in the Sun. Is that right? Yeah. So this mounting of the play, it was originally, I suppose, a clapback to uh, Clibourne Park and Kwame's response to that piece. But yeah. as we've revisited it in this uh, rehearsal period, we've really made it as a standalone piece. It's a piece that is accessible within 2023. Obviously that was, you know, 2012, I think when it was first written um, yeah. and was done in the States where this time we're looking at post lockdown, you know, we've all had the experience of watching George Floyd being murdered and how does uh, social sciences, how does academia respond to the lockdown that we've just had? And I think it's a really brilliant piece that kind of shines a light on so many different arguments that, as we say in the play, it's not so much black and white. It's actually um, just hearing the arguments laid out. And I think the first half really centres around the root of where it comes from, which is um, the search for identity, which beneath her, that's what brings her to Nigeria, her search for identity yeah. and, and reclaiming of, of, of her identity as, as an African, um, but having the experience of being African-American and then bringing that knowledge to the States. It addresses a, a sort of a, a movement, particularly on the right wing of politics, uh, and particularly over the last few years, that this, this idea that we should somehow be moving towards a sort of post-racialism, that we're past addressing race, aren't we? Or that, um, that somehow it's, it's, it's too difficult to speak about. How is that to play on stage? And what are the reactions you're getting from the, from the audience? I think what's been interesting is having um, discussions with all different types of people once we come off stage. I think the Americans get it straight away. There's a whole other layer that they experience. I think we are a lot further behind in this country, how we speak about race. I think the Americans are a lot more further ahead in regards to, first of all, understanding and seeing what's happening around them and then being in response to it. So everyone has an opinion about things. I think it's it's very difficult to even have a full opinion about things when we aren't, um, we don't even properly know our history here. We don't even fully understand what has happened, you know, during colonial times or even um, which countries are still under colonial rule or we we, we don't know. Um, I feel yeah. like because a lot of stuff happened in America that was on on the land, it's right in front of people to to be able to understand it. They understand where the money comes from. They know where their money has come from. They know that this ancestor and this ancestor was picking cotton and that, that they know where they've travelled from in terms of migration and how, you know, Benita represents that. She knows that her parents... Yeah travelled from the south to come to Chicago for a better life, that her 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 family would have been sharecroppers and before that her family would have been um, enslaved. African people in this country, being, you know, I'm of Caribbean descent, 
There is a yeah. big chunk of history that is missing that I myself do not know um, because it has been wiped because a lot of my ancestors who came from the Caribbean, um, there is there is a wiping of history. So before we can even have the full conversation that we, we need to have and continue to keep having about race and how as a construct, yeah. how it, it is holding us back as a people, we have to be able to understand our history. That's the difference, I think, between the Americans and the Brits. And that's why it sits so uncomfortable. I think even more uncomfortable here because it, 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 it it does something um, on a cellular level um, that we haven't been able to fully uh, communicate just yet. I think the conversations are happening, I think, within academia and academic spaces and debates and things like that. But in terms of how it trickles down into, I suppose, the the for everybody to have the conversation, it's not quite happening just yet. In the play, as you say, you have to, well, Benita has to age about 64 years, doesn't she, between the first and second half. Tell me how that is to achieve. First of all, I'd like to shout out uh, Shelley Maxwell, who who's a wonderful movement director, artist, dancer herself, um, and she supported me on this process. I come from a dance background, so for me, it's a physical challenge, and it's also right. exciting uh, for me to be able to age up, I suppose, and to have had the gift of the first half, and to then carry that into the second half, and adding layers of years yeah. through body. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 been fun and challenging, and. Um, for me, I just think of the older generations above me who have been weathering the storm. And for me, I, I get to honour those those women um, every time I get to step on stage as older Benita, you know, who's very proud, who's dignified. But she has been she's been carrying a whole community um, with her for decades and decades. And that shows on the body in different ways. It was nerve wracking and exciting all at the same time. I know on your website, you say you've, uh, you've, you've got a particular interest in sort of de- um, devised or, or collaborative theatre, but you've also been involved in a couple of entertainment juggalo- juggernauts. I'm particularly thinking of Harry Potter, where you played a junior Weasley Granger, didn't you? How was that to be part of? Yeah, so I, I, I had the great good fortune of originating Rose Granger Weasley, um, um, with Noma Dumaswini playing my mother as Hermione Granger. She's incredible and a dear friend. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was amazing to, first of all, be part of the creative process of creating a lot of the magic. Like the very early magic tricks that we created was in our devising process, the movement we got to make, um, the incredible movement by Stephen Hugger right. and all, all, the, the incredible creative team. It was like bare bones, like stripped back before we then were able to put it into the space, um, carrying people on our backs to kind of figure out how we can lift people, like, you know, being in harnesses and flying. And yeah, those earlier days in the process was was amazing. And then obviously then being able to share the show with with an audience was like a whole another whirlwind within itself. What was amazing about that was seeing like a whole another generation of um, people that hadn't necessarily been to the theatre. They came to the theatre because they loved the books and that's what brought them yes. to the theatre. And there's actually like a little fan club of Cursed Child fan, fan club uh, theatre members who would 
who would come like I think they'd watch the show like a hundred times and they all keep tabs on a lot of the um original wow. cast and they come out and watch us so when we had our press night and I know a lot of the other cast uh, previous cast members in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child we they um they come and watch some of our shows so um it's amazing wow. there is a whole new generation of theatre goers now because of that show that that weren't necessarily interested in theatre just just briefly tell me a little bit about Black Tris, which you set up so Black Tris has been going since 2017 um we center the voices of black women actors I would say that we are um, a group that is rooted solely in community. Um, we also have gone into producing work as well. So we have socials, um, workshops, we do fundraisers for the community. We do collaborations with theatres and ticket discounts to make sure that we're bringing in people who are, you know, not only black women, but people of the community who wouldn't necessarily come and take up space within theatre. One of our proud projects that we're really proud of is collaborating with the National Theatre on a project called The Sage Club. And we brought in some elders from the African and Caribbean community um, where we had 70, 70 to 100 tickets given, discounted tickets for elders over 65 and their chaperones um, to come and watch Small Island. This was the first mounting. And then we had Maya right. Jeffers, who was an incredible award-winning portrait uh, photographer and a dear friend who took pictures of them um, on the day. So they got VIP treatment on the day and they also got to meet the cast members. And that was great just to see elders who were part of the Windrush generation to be able to watch Small Island in the National Theatre. That was really, really important. So we do projects like that um, where we're yeah. bringing in community. We're also getting volunteers from the community to be involved, fundraising for Women's Refuge, fundraising for the Sickle Cell Society, hosting screenings of films, um, and also going into drama schools as well. Sherelsky, thank you ever so much for joining me on the on the uh, Evening Standard Theatre podcast. We should say that Beneath Us Place runs to the 5th of August at the Young Vic. Thank, thank you, you much. so much, Nick. Take care. That was Nick Curtis speaking to actress Sherelle Skeet. After this quick break, we'll be discussing A Strange Loop at the Barbican. In the meantime, why not give us a follow and a five-star rating? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Tim Minchin. I'm the composer-lyricist of Groundhog Day, the musical, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, it's uh, time to chat about A Strange Loop. This is a musical by Michael R. Jackson, who was just on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and that interview is available in our show notes. But I have not seen this, unfortunately. So, Nick, what did you think? Well, I went and caught up on it last night. It was reviewed for the paper by Tim Bano while I was away in Denmark. This meant that I went in there aware that the show had divided not only critics but also <laughs> friends of mine pretty much down the middle. I mean, this is a real Marmite event, I think, a in London theatre. A friend of mine said that it starts off fairly strongly with a rather 
uh, should we say, punchy opening, and some there was some wincing in the, in yes. the from the older members of the audience. We should say, we should tell people. We said it's a it's a Broadway musical. It won yeah. two Tonys and it won uh, the Pulitzer Prize yeah. for Michael R. Jackson. It is the story of an usher who is called Usher, who is a fat black gay man who is an usher at the Lion King. And he's writing a musical about a fat gay black man who is an usher at the Lion King, who is writing a musical about a fat black gay man. And very so on, meta. And, so on, and, so on, very meta. <laughs> and this is the strange loop. This is one of the, one of the strange loops in it. The, uh, a strange loop is, a, is a, I think, a sort of medical psychological term mm. about repetitive behavior and about mm. basically ending up where you started, you know, indulging in behaviors that, that bring you back to square one, as mm. it were. And so there's quite a lot of that in that. It's very clever in the way it uses repetition, but it's also very repetitive in the way it uses repetition. And, and there are moments when you think, oh, come on, do, do something different. Is this sort of Groundhog Day style? Yeah, it's sort of Groundhog Day style, except, uh, I mean, it's. Um, I found the show a, a mixture of the absolutely exciting and breathtaking and, and really quite audacious and really, really exasperating. Mm. I mean, I have to say, one of the things that I really do dislike in the theatre is writing about how awful it is to be a writer. You mm. just think, well, stop writing then. <laughs> you know, yeah. That said, I mean, this this one is a more sophisticated example mm. of that genre. I think Michael R. Jackson now prefers not to call it an autobiographical show. He, mm. he says when he started writing it as a monologue years ago, I think over a decade ago, mm. um, he acknowledges that that was very much an autobiographical story about his life and about his lack of self-esteem and, mm. and uh, his lack of advancement in the industry. Now he sort of says it, it's sort of self-referential, I think, right. rather than autobiographical. I think that was the term he used when Nancy interviewed him for the podcast mm-hmm. the other week. It's quite sort of audacious in its staging mm. in that it's it's really quite simple, actually. It starts with... Uh, Two sets of doorways in which various actors playing his inner thoughts step Mm. through. One of them introduces himself and says, Hey, Michael, it's me. It's your daily self-loathing here just to remind you that you're an awful person. I think they use a slightly different version, (laughs) uh, a slightly different wording to that. Um, And... These actors also play versions, quite cartoonish versions Mm. of his parents and other family members, his agent, you know, the various people he comes across in life, the people he meets when he tries dating disastrously online. Some critics who come from perhaps the more reactionary side of the spectrum Mm. have taken issue with the subject matter. But the music is good. Well, I was going to ask you about extraordinary. The tunes, would would you come out with a, you know, humming the tunes? Yeah, I mean, it's a there's there's a huge amount of variety in it. I think there's a lot of references to American culture in here, particularly to the career of Tyler Perry, who is the sort of his sort of nemesis or almost the sort of antichrist as far as he's concerned. Yes, who's you know massive in the states. Yeah, and who writes these these sort of. immensely popular films and stage shows which quite often involve um, cross-dressing and quite often involve a Christian message. Uh, Here, Usher's parents, they they live this sort of fairly horrible, imperfect life where his dad's an alcoholic and his mum's overweight and uh, his older brother lives in the basement with his baby mama who who sort of hates him. uh, But they, they love Usher, but they can't get their heads around his lifestyle. So he's constantly trying to explain to them what, what being him means and they are constantly not understanding again it's another strange loop that they keep coming back to the same positions over and over again in the show i mean it, it's only uh, i think an hour and 40 minutes straight through but it sounds like there's an awful lot packed in here there is an awful lot packed in here and it's extremely clever and complicated and thoughtful some of the reviews seem to suggest that this was just some vulgar thing that's mm. been slapped on the stage but it's not it's taken years yeah. to to hone and craft and there's some really deep thinking in there and some very very challenging ideas and does it translate to because it was seen as a very american show yeah Uh, i think does it translate to the british audience i think 
I think the themes are universal. Yeah. The cultural touchstones are not. So right. Popeye's chicken and yeah. Tyler Perry are not as familiar here as, as, as they are over there. And I think also the fact that Usher is working on a Disney show, he's working on The Lion King mm. as an Usher, uh, that has a different significance in America, working working for Disney mm. and knowing what that means, you know, the sort of uniformity of it and mm -hmm. the strictness of it. Uh, all his family are referred to by the names of the characters in uh, in The Lion King, so right. his dad's called Mufasa. Right. Um, <laughs> his, um, his brother's girlfriend is called Rafiki. Uh, <laughs> they booked it into the Barbican Theatre for quite a long run for that, for that space, yeah. obviously hoping that it would find a British audience. Now, it, it sounds like there should be a British audience for it because... You know, there, there is so much in here. As Michael R. Jackson said to Nancy when she spoke to him on the podcast, um, well, I think she said to him she wasn't surprised that there was an audience for it here because there very clearly is. People are crying out mm. for stuff that isn't white, straight and boring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But she was surprised that commercial producers were prepared to take that leap. Yeah. And I think all credit to them for doing so. Absolutely. It's directed by the New York director, Stephen Brackett, and it's choreographed by uh, Roger Feather Kelly. Compared to Crazy For You, it's not, this is not tap dancing and big chorus line numbers. This is very sort of close, tight, mm. intricately weaving choreography. Again, it's a strange loop. The characters are always circling Usher and sort of tying him up in uh, in his own anxieties. And I've heard very good things about the actor playing Usher. Yeah, Kyle Raymar Freeman. He's extraordinary. He was, I gather, the understudy on Broadway, but right. went on more than 100 times, I believe. A strange Loop, I think, opened fairly soon after COVID, and I think there was quite a lot of right. illness racketing around the cast. So he's well-versed in the role. Mm. Um, he is extraordinary. Uh, he has this very high, very, um, very powerful voice. Mm. Well, I haven't seen it, but I have to say it sounds like one of the most intriguing uh, musicals or just theatrical productions of the year. So I'm pretty keen to go yeah, out and see Yeah, I mean, compared to, uh, you know, I see some new musicals that are out there which don't have a fraction of this show's sort of intellectual mm heft uh, or radicalism or as I say thoughtfulness I'm certainly sold so I will be heading to the Barbican Theatre uh, as soon as possible to see that you won't be bored And that's it for this week's Theatre Podcast. You can find all our previous interviews below, such as with Michael R. Jackson, the creator of A Strange Loop, but also with Millie Alcock and Caitlin Fitzgerald uh, in The Crucible and Danny Rigby for Accidental Death of an Anarchist and many, many more. You can also find all our reviews fresh from Press Night and news online at standard.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode and thanks as always to our producer, Rachel Abbott. See you soon. 